And welcome in to another edition on this Saturday morning, the 29th of September of the Bat Around. Stan the Fan and Craig Heist in studio. How are you, my friend? Good. What's up? What's up? What's, you know what's what? up? They lost the game last night. The yeah. Orioles did yeah. by a count of two to one. But I have to admit, that was a very enjoyable game to watch because David Hess he really pitched, pitched so well and he, he got into a couple of jams not monumental right but you know with a couple on nobody out or one out and he managed to make pitches to get out of it uh kept his pitch count very manageable uh and here's a guy that you look at that and say with the way he's pitched the last five six times out he's certainly a viable candidate for that rotation next year there is absolutely no question about it he is sort of um come back from you know he's like a phoenix rising from his ashes you know yeah. remember a couple of years ago mike wright came up and got off to a fantastic start for like two or three starts mm-hmm. and we were talking about him the way we're talking about david hess right now but also the way we were talking about david hess after his first two or three starts this year right we were saying hey this guy's a viable piece for the rotation and then all of a sudden everything went south his repertoire didn't look like it had the chance to pl- really play at the major league level. And as critical as I've been of Roger McDowell as pitching coach, I will have to say this is one in the Roger McDowell checkbox yeah. where he's done a good job at sort of working with this guy and resurrecting him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I would agree with you, especially – with how thin the rotation looks right now mm-hmm. with the uh, second half that Dylan Bundy's had, I would say that David Hess has pulled himself probably, in my estimation, really, frankly, above um, uh, Andrew Kashner as like maybe the number three starter on this team. Yeah. And if nothing else, at least the number four starter. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I think he really needs to – kind of find his way in terms of we know he has two pitches right it's the secondary pitches after that that you know that become become problematic problematic especially when he falls behind right uh but i i really think he the the orioles and he are kind of on to something here and and if he can figure that part of it out stan he can be a very viable piece of this rotation you know i've I've covered the Orioles all the years that Jim Palmer uh, has been in the broadcast booth, mm-hmm. and, and I've never really said this that because I don't. I think Palmer is very respectful of who the pitching coach is. I wonder if Jim, just from listening to him a little bit, I, I have a sense there's something about this kid that he likes. Yeah, and I'm well, not saying you can tell that by listening to him. Yeah, I mean he really thinks it's a puzzle that can be figured out, and then this guy can really play at the major league level, or his stuff can play at the major league level. And I couldn't be happier for him because he does seem like a really nice kid. Yeah, and uh, again... But then again, you seemed like a nice kid when I met you. And you know how I turned out, (laughs) son. But, yeah, and again, who knows where this puzzle, if you will, is going to go, but by the same token... You know, when you look at things like this in a very lost season, right? you are tending to try to find positives that you can take and go forward with, and I certainly think he falls into that category. All right. Stan the Fan and Craig Heist, and, and um, this is a show, ironically, Craig Heist, that Steve Garland is not going to be on. Yeah. But our first three guests 
What are the first three? What is the first name of the first three guests? Steve. Steve Molesky, Steve Sparks, and Steve Jeppy. <laughs> and then Steve Zuckerman's going to be. Oh, it's no, Mark, it's Mark Zuckerman. Zuckerman. And yeah. you had an interview with Steve Zimmerman, right? No, no that's, that's Ryan, Ryan Zimmerman. Zimmerman. That's exactly All right. right. All right. Anyway, um, we are here to do the bat around, and we'll uh, be doing it right now. Craig. Uh, it is, uh, there's nothing sadder to me. I don't know if you're familiar with the Frank Sinatra song. There used to be a ballpark here. Yeah. There, it, that conjures up more the, like, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, County Stadium in Milwaukee, you know. Tiger uh, Stadium. Tiger yeah. Stadium. But there's nothing sadder than the end of a baseball season. But I have to admit when you have a baseball season like the Baltimore Orioles have suffered through and their mm-hmm. fans have suffered through, it's not necessarily a sad thing. No, it isn't. And, you know, I found myself last night sitting at the at the game and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not really into this. Even yeah, for as I good have. a ball game as it was, I'm you know, I'm just sitting there, sitting there thinking I want something else. And, and it's just not been there this year for the Orioles. Yeah, it's like Art Modell when he, uh, you know, Art suffered a, a very bad blood infection at mm-hmm. one point in his career, uh, in his life, and uh, this was in probably the last five, six years of his life. He had a, it was touch and go whether he'd make it. He was in a coma, and he came out of the coma, and David Modell told me this story, and the families around him, because they're waiting for the, the news to be your your father, your grandfather has passed away. And instead they said, he's showing some remarkable signs. You know, they came in and they they go, Poppy, David Modell says, Poppy, are you trying to say something? And he goes, I feel like a 19-year-old. And they went, what? And he goes, do you know where I can find one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, and, I, and I'm just saying that was that's probably what you, uh, that was art sense of humor. But I'm thinking about that last night that you wish you were something else, and you're looking for that 19 year old. Anyway, um, Adam Jones, um, you know, by most accounts, everybody seems to think it's a done deal that Adam's going to complete this season, the last of his six year extension. And we'll move on. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to say that there there can't be some type of reunion, whether and I'm not saying necessarily for the rest of his career, but uh, I still think that Adam Jones fits here uh, for a variety of reasons. And I understand what the club is doing with the rebuild and all that. And with a rebuild comes the chopping of salaries, but you still got to field players that are of some interest to the fans and connect at some level, a few of them, and well, I can't think of a guy who connects better with the fans of Baltimore than uh, the club's MVP once again, Adam Jones. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and it's just not from that standpoint, but you need to feel the team with a player or two that can be helpful to the young youth movement that this team is trying to employ right now. And, uh, you know, Adam has moved to right field, and... Uh, I thought I think has played it pretty well. The games that I've seen him, he's had a couple of outfield assists from out there. Right. So uh, again, he's got to get used to the angles of cutting off the balls a little bit. A little he's bit, but get, you know, but, off, but the, off, off the wall and 
Doing it in the middle of the season is a lot harder than people think. Well, three quarters of the yeah, way through three quarters the season, of yeah. the way through the season. But you, you're absolutely right. But, I mean, uh, you, you know, instinctively, those things don't leave can you. you. Britt, can you tape that and use that as a, a bump once in a while? You're absolutely right. You know, uh-huh. you said that. It's the first time I think I've ever, ever heard you say that. I'm leaving. I'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, he's – instinctively those things don't leave you as an outfielder and a guy that's been in the major leagues as long as Adam has. And, uh, again, last night at the plate, first time up RBI double, he gets Orioles on the board. Uh, you're off and running. I mean, he can mean so much to this club going forward. If, if it's at a price that they could, you know, come yeah. to an agreement. I mean, I, I think yeah. there's no question he wants to stay for, a, as you said, a variety of reasons. Yep. And uh, I mean, his family's here right. now. This is his. This is his adopted home. His wife is a Baltimorean. You know, the kids. The, this is what they know for a large part, Baltimore. So we'll see how it all. You know. Uh, Keith Mills is fond of saying, we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, um, I found this, this year's MVP vote for, Oriole, for the Orioles, it was a slam dunk in some ways, but, you know, the rules are you couldn't vote for Manny Machado because the player had to be in an Oriole, still in an Oriole right, uniform. Right, right. And I'll tell you, once you got past Adam Jones, Trey – was was not that far behind because I really respect what Trey did this mm-hmm. year, you know, because so many players in their second season, that sophomore slump swallows them whole. Swallows them whole, but you know what? I thought he handled it and battled through it really well and turned out to be a pretty good second half for yeah. him. Yeah, so I voted for him with my number two pick. And my number three pick, believe it or not, I wanted to go Trumbo, mm-hmm. but Trumbo's, and it's funny how this happened, I wanted to go Trumbo, and I said, you know what? He was injured at the beginning of the year when we could have used, you know, that first month it turned out he would have been a valuable bat in that lineup. And then he missed the last, like, five, six weeks of the season. I said he wasn't there enough. So I went with Alex Cobb, who I felt battled through a lot of stuff and persevered. It was almost like the day I voted well, for him, I, I did the vote, blisters. I did vote for Mark Trumbo because there's yeah. no way I could put a pitcher on this so, yeah. in that category. Yeah. Uh, I give um, I give Cobb a lot of credit for battling. Oh, sure. Through, uh, but it was almost like the day I voted for him, all of a sudden the blister problem developed. So uh, a, a lost season for the Baltimore Orioles, but one in which maybe they found themselves uh, a new path, you know, and it's not going to be an easy path, the rebuild. Uh, no, because we have to figure out who's calling the shots and who's running the show and who's going to be the GM and the manager. You know, are they both going to be here? Are they both not going to be here? Is one or the other going to be here? All of those things have to be settled, and I hope, I hope. Right. Orioles, are you listening? I hope that it doesn't take more than a few days after the World Series is concluded for them to make this determination. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of fans and media are hoping that it's going to be Monday, Tuesday this week, like that they go from well, the season possible. ending to at announcing. Le- at least to know, not necessarily who's going to be in charge, but right. the fact that whoever's not going to be here. I, right. That I could certainly see happening within a day or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, your thoughts, uh, listen, 
I know you and I both like Buck Showalter an awful lot and appreciate the job he's done. Uh, but do you honestly think he's going to be back at this point in time? I don't. Not, yeah. not now. Okay. Not yeah. the way from all reports and everything else. But yeah. now, does that not mean I don't want him to come back? No. I, yeah. I think he – you know, look, Buck didn't get stupid overnight. There's a lot of things wrong with his baseball team. Buck didn't forget how to manage overnight. So – uh, again, it comes down to talent, what he's given to work with. And some would say that during the playoff years, uh, he probably overachieved with what he had on the roster. I would say that that's, that's true. He was always sort of struggling to get a pitching staff. You know, uh, uh, there were two things that were wrong with this team. They certainly played defense of a cha- championship caliber. And that's uh, gone out the window right now? Yeah. They slugged at a championship level, but the on-base ability mm-hmm. slash on-base percentage yep. and the quality starting pitching were always pretty much absent from the team. When you when you look through not orange-colored glasses, but realistic-colored glasses, they were deficient in those two areas. No question. And, uh, you know... <laughs> and and let me, you, you, let me you, give you, one you, other compliment, too. They fielded well... They always ran the bases pretty well for the most part. They weren't fast, but they ran the bases pretty well. And Buck handled a bullpen about as well as anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you, know, you know, when you think back to the starting rotation in the good years, I mean, you, you've got a Bud Norris winning 15 games right. one year. Who the hell expects that to happen? Right, right. You know, and, and – you know, some other guys, I think. Wee-Yin Chen. Wee-Yin Chen was, you know, and, and he's, you know, and hindsight now, that turned out to be a pretty good decision. Uh, it was a dis- great deal. Great decision. Not he, to resign Not him, to yeah. resign oh, him, yeah. No question about it, yeah. But, I mean, when he was here, he was certainly serviceable. And, uh, and Tillman was as solid as a rock in the ro- in the and, center of that right, rotation, exactly. at the top of the rotation. He was, and then when you think of the back end of the bullpen, uh, to to get to Zach Britton, I mean, with O'Day and, and Brock. Brock, and yeah, and Brock's had his struggles with the Braves all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm seeing him give it up regularly. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, I hadn't noticed that. I thought he got <laughs> he got off to a terrific start yeah. for about the first month there. So, all right, we are the bat around. Stan the fan and Craig Heist. Uh, our first guest is going to be Mass and Steve, at Mass and Steve. That's Steve Molesky. Does a fantastic job covering both the Major League Club and nobody knows the Oriole Minor League System. I used to have a pretty good knowledge of the Minor League System. Yeah, but Steve uh, Steve is on top of it like nobody. Yeah. Um, and he does any. And another thing, he happens to be a pretty terrific guy. Yeah. Yeah. We've known, I've, I've known Steve 25 years. Right. And right. used to do work for him when he was at the Virginia News Network. And right. Then but, he, then, but you never really liked him. Then, then he left. He but left. you never really liked oh, Steve Molesky. No, 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 no yeah. not really. Yeah. 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 Second-rate talent. It's all a facade. <laughs> hey, Steve Molesky, you're on the air with us. Hey, I was hearing all that. Hey, yeah. Uh, yeah. I know now, you knew that. Uh, Steve Molesky, seriously, you do, uh, and in a year, in a season like this, you're to be commended because I know how tough it is to be out there every single day and having to provide content for readers out there, and you do, a, seriously, a bang-up job at it uh, in your sort of second career because uh, we knew you as a radio broadcast guy like us, and uh, you've become a really consummate pro as a writer. 
Well, you're nice to say, and it has been a tough year, I think, for fans and reporters and players and everybody in Birdland. It's been tough and grueling, and in the blog business where you just write constantly, you we still write constantly whether they have won 105 <laughs> games or lost 113, so um, it's more fun in the first one, I can tell you that. Hey, S- Steve, let me ask you this really quick. After the, the, the game tomorrow, how long do the Orioles take before they announce whether or not it's, you know, Showalter's gone or, or you know, Duquette's gone or one of the others coming back? Or how long do yeah, we have do you to wait see for it that as kind of, Do you see it as kind of an immediate announcement Monday or Tuesday, or do you think this could, you know, sort of wait through the playoffs? I, I think it will be pretty fast, and I think it could be Monday or Tuesday. We could see some form of an announcement or something from the team, and I think that would serve all best. Yeah. If one or both of the men, Dan and Buck, are in or out, it would be good for all to know. And it would also be good for the team to tell us who's run the show and know that the uh, you know who is the top decision maker and is that guy going to be your guy? And if it's Duquette, okay, fine. If it's Brady, I mean, fine. But <clears throat> um, I think we need to hear some of this and no more blurred lines or confusion for the fans and people around baseball. And so um, the Orioles have committed to this rebuild, and I think that the ownership is strongly behind it. So now we're going to find out who's running this rebuild. You know, it's just interesting. In the, in the old, old days, um, and I'm, I'm not going back as far as Jerry Huffberger, but when the Orioles were owned by Edward Bennett Williams or run by Larry Lucchino, that person was really at the critical press conferences, you know, and then uh, Hank Peters or Roland Heeman, of course, ran a lot of player acquisition press conferences. Peter Angelos has never been the guy that wanted to be out front at these press conferences. Do you anticipate that whether it's Dan or a new boss for Dan, that that it'll still remain that way, that there won't be an Angelos at the podium to announce things? I would not expect to see that happen, but uh, moving forward, I think the fans would really welcome it, yeah. whether it's uh, some one or some all the men or however they decide to do it. I think one thing we, we have seen in the limited time we've seen John and Lou Angelos in public, whether it was the statue ceremonies, which Lewis did so beautifully, yep. representing ownership, and John, we've seen limited interviews how much he cares and how intelligent and articulate he is. I mean, I don't have a lot of dealings with those those gentlemen much, but I have over the years a few times, and I've always left impressed. And that's not me being a homer. That's me telling you the deal. And people who I talk to who talk to them tell me they've been impressed with things they've heard from, from John and Lou Angelos in the last few months and, and longer. And so... I I think we should all give them a chance to see what they have in store. And I think uh, if they were to ask me, hey, Steve, do you think at some point we should sit down and let the fans hear from us, I would wholeheartedly say yes. Now, that that doesn't mean they're going to listen to me. So um, I think that good things are in store. Now, whether we're going to hear a lot from them publicly is another matter. Yeah. Listen, I know Peter has been very good to you on a personal level and a professional level, Steve, and you've deserved that to begin with. 
but uh, so I don't think you have a lot negative to say about Peter uh, and his ownership. But you're you're realistic. I don't think the boys should have the sins of the father visited upon them because there were certain aspects of ownership you might not have liked the way Peter did certain things. I think the boys deserve a kind of a clean slate going into this. I, I think what would impress fans, and I've seen this in all three of those Angelos men we've talking about, mm-hmm. is how much they care. And I think you get that when you talk to them individually. When I worked back at WBAL, we're going way back in the day now, <laughs> and I would meet occasionally with Peter Angelos at his law office to talk about the team yep. at his invitation, and I obviously was going to accept that. Um, I found someone who was so passionate, he talked to me like a fan would. If mm-hmm. I met a fan at the bar and said, can you believe they let that game get, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's how he was. Mm-hmm. And he's so passionate about the team, and he would bring up minor leaguers at Bowie. I was shocked he knew. Hey, how about so-and-so playing short at Bowie? I mean, I said, sir, you know him? You know of right. him? And so he, he did. And he was like a passionate, educated fan. And I told him on more than one occasion, I sure wish the fans of Baltimore who criticize you could be sitting with me now, and I think they'd change your opinion. I wish you'd yep. could you somehow allow them to do that. And I don't think he was ever comfortable doing it. And while Art Modell, bless his heart for bringing a football team to Baltimore, was shaking hands and kissing babies and got a great rep because he was so personable and he liked that, Peter Angelos was different, but they were both good for Baltimore. Yeah. You wonder what it would have been like if every once in a while Peter just went out in the bleachers like Harry Carey did or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think fans would have really understood him a lot better. Then I saw him at spring training in Fort Lauderdale one year, and he was just kind of hanging out off by himself with a few people, and I said, so I said, sir, I wish you would have just walked around the stadium, shook a few hands, mm-hmm. bought some people from Baltimore a Coke, and I'll bet you, out of that five-minute engagement, all of Baltimore would have heard about it. Yep. Um, and so that's just not his way. But that didn't mean he didn't like those people. He just is different. Some of us are. I'm not great at that. I'm not good shaking hands and working the room. That's that's. Some people aren't great at that. So, but it doesn't take away from some other things. I'll, I'll tell you, we we used to use periodically. We used to use a photographer here at Press Box named Jim Berger. And Jim is was fantastic. He was Sun Papers photographer for a long time. He did the original Mel Kuyper cover on Press Box, our first issue, and then he did our ten year anniversary issue with Mel Kuyper on the cover, holding the first cover. Uh, but the other time he worked for us was the interview I did with Peter Angelos about a year into Press Box. And he he had an idea. He brought this bat with him. And I don't know if you've ever seen that bat with the Orioles uh, sort of uh, signature in the in the the um, the heart of the bat up at the top. You know, the head of the bat, the bat head. And it was sort of scripted out. Have you ever seen that bat? I don't think so. Okay, it's almost like it was branded in, but it was carved in. And he said, do me a favor. We were waiting for Peter for about 10, 15 minutes while he wrapped up some other business. He says, stand at the window here and hold this bat. And he took some like five, ten pictures of me holding the bat. He says, this is what I'm hoping to, to do with the cover with Peter Angelos. Mm-hmm. And it was great. You know, it was like saying, hey, I'm the heavy hitter, you know. And he, we got Peter to the window, and we were saying, hey, we, before we sit down and do the interview, 
uh, Mike, uh, Jim's got an idea of this photograph, and he's holding the bat there, and Jim is just about ready to click, and he goes, oh, I don't want to do this. He goes, people think, like, Angelos wants to start playing for the team or something. <laughs> Nothing could have been further from the truth. It was just sort of a way of saying he's the heavy hitter, but he, right. he sort of at key moments like that, he didn't want or allow. Well, he's just done so many things. Yeah. Um, that people don't know about, and I'll, I'll you know, I'm not going to start throwing yeah. out names here, but we could, and so um, he's just done a lot of good things. He, yeah. he cares a lot, and I mean, people who have been around him get to see that. Unfortunately, most people don't get to be around him. Is it a fair assessment, then, to what I've always said about he he wants what's good for the team, for the city, but from the team standpoint, he just doesn't quite know how to go about getting there. Well, he made a lot of mistakes over the years. Yep. And so I remember having a very direct conversation with him about Albert Bell and his signing. And his take to me was, um, you go tell our pitchers, this, I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to help them win. That's why we brought this guy in. We don't want the Yankees to get him. And so I said, sir, your heart's in the right place, but was this the right guy? I mean, right. And we we found out he wasn't. He didn't change his colors, and so um, you know that things like that. And so Look we were talking about it last night about Heisty's buddy Mike Messina. Yep. You yeah. Know, who at the end he offered him a good amount of money, but it it was too late. And so you know some of these things were, were probably mistakes. And so, uh, but listen, there were, there, there were other good things that happened too. Listen, the lar- the largest mistake he made in terms of dollars and cents has been the Chris Davis signing, and yet you you look at the genesis of the desire to have Chris Davis back for where he was with his age and his health and everything and his desire to get the Oriole fans a championship. He thought that that was the best method when he signed that contract with Chris three years ago that we couldn't afford to lose him, and it's cost him dearly. There's no question well, about Well, he might have been leading with his heart a little bit yes. and leading with his fan base because yeah. fans will act like they didn't. They weren't saying this now. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not blanking, blanketing all fans with this, but I interact with fans as much as anybody, and they were screaming at the, his free agency yeah. to me on the blog daily. Yep. Yep. If, the, if the team is serious about winning, we're going to see it here. And that was that was the, how they threw the gauntlet down. A lot of fans, it wasn't it wasn't they need to resign him. It was going beyond that. If they're serious about winning, they'll keep this player. And so they did. And we know how it's worked out so far. To yeah. go to go back to where we were, what were you talking about at the very beginning about when a decision? Did you see Jerry Krasnick's tweet from yesterday? No, I didn't. Uh, just says the Orioles haven't talked to Dan or Buck about their futures and haven't made a decision on the status of either, sources say, and there's no indication precisely when the Angelos brothers plan to sit down with their GM and manager and make the call. Well, Right, right. He said no decisions have been made right. yet, con- con- you know, contradicting the other report, which, as some reporters have pointed out to me, the first one from Nightingale was the Orioles are expected to. It didn't say they will. Well, they right, have. exactly. Right. You know, wasn't the f- expected is like what we're hearing, you know, this is what we're hearing kind of thing, more than a definitive someone told them this will happen Tuesday, um, which reporters, when they, you know, it, 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 it's just been kept kind of quiet. And, yep. you know, I do think some major change is coming. Now we're going to see 
what that means exactly. We're talking with Steve Molesky at Steve at Mass and Steve is the uh, Twitter handle. Steve Molesky, Steve. Um, I'm asking not for a player-by-player player analysis, but you'd know this minor league organization as well as anybody in town, including the, uh, you know, the farm director. And uh, on a, if you were judging, I know you don't know who Cleveland's got or the Orioles when they entered into making all these trades. I think they were fifteenth or sixteenth in the minor leagues. Do you think that they are now? Uh, with with the knowledge that they're going to get the number one pick next year, are they in the top ten now? I mean, do they have enough real talent coming through the pipeline that they could be a top ten minor league system now? They're not there yet. Uh, they're probably still in that fifteen to twenty range if, if and when people rank it. And so, but the good news is they potentially, if they can pull it off, well, you know, we know they'll get have the number one draft pick, right? And that'll happen in June. And they hope maybe they'll get the number one international prospect who's going to do his workout and showcase next Friday, Victor Victor Mesa. So, if where, they is it, where, is he, that, where is he doing that? In Florida? He's or? doing it in Florida, yes. Okay. If they could pull off that one-two acquisition there, boy, that would pump a lot of life into the farm. And yep. D.L. Hall, I can tell you this, he when, all, when the top 100s come out, uh, he's, he'll be there. He's good. He is... He is um, trending up fast the scouts i talk to can't stop telling me how much they like him and so he's going to merge as the best pitching prospect over the winter he's he's you know he's like a hit record he's flying up the charts so there's four they're going to have in the top 100 they're going to have had diaz hayes mountcastle and hall and so i've got a couple others probably in that 150 top 150 so that'll help, and it's high-end prospects which really bring that up. So if they can go from four to five or six, top 100, all of a sudden then you can be ranked 12, 14, 8, 10, 12, somewhere in there. Tell me about two, and, and you know, sometimes uh, it's like the old B.B. King song, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. That's why I'm uh, doing this show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the two guys we were most interested in seeing how their 2018 would evolve were Austin Hayes and Hunter Harvey. Not one, but both of them had kind of substantive, lingering, long-term health issues this year. Hayes had never had them before. Hunter Harvey, for him, it's becoming a little chronic, although it's different each time. What do you think the offseason holds for both of them? Well, I think it's two very different situations because I think Austin Hayes' problem finally got fixed. Fixed, yeah. This surgical procedure. And I do think there was some – the ankle was uh, – I just don't know. They never could quite hone down exactly what it was. It was some – there was a, a cyst. And then they find, so finally they, they did a procedure. And so now it's a matter of just him recovering, which he should be fine for spring. Okay. And when healthy, we saw in 2017, he's a top prospect. He's got four or five tools, and he's, you know, the guy was uh, in, in the conversation. He was not, no, don't go crazy here, but this is from Baseball America, not Steve, that he was in the conversation for Player of the Year with Acuna. He was not mm-hmm. beating out Acuna last right. year, as we I know. But when they picked the final five, he was there. It's so, a rare, ta- it's a rare talent that he's does still got what a rare he did. Talent. He can yeah. bring several tools, and yeah. and 
you know, John Manuel, when he was working for Baseball America, told me, if not for Okuna, Steve, Austin Hayes would be the player of the year. But Okuna's going to get it. This was end of 2017. So Hayes was well considered, and he still is. He just has to get healthy. Let me interrupt you for one second, just for your credibility's sakes. If you were rating Heist and how many tools (laughs) he's got, how many would you say he's got? Uh, now keep in, keep in pl- mind what's on the plate. Well, I was going to say really eating, eating heavily, food. drinking heavily. Well, I was going to say keep in mind you've known me for about twenty five years. <laughs> I know, I know some of his hidden talents too. So let's just we <laughs> let's move on up. to Hunter Harvey. All right, go ahead. But Hunter Harvey, um, that's that's got more concern for me because each time he would get going this year, something would happen again. So now the latest news was he does not have structural damage that's good but my follow-up question is then why does he keep having to get shut down every week or two and every time he's throwing yeah so this kid has pitched so few innings and it's so disappointing because i saw him at delmarva when he was healthy before the tommy john and i mean it was a special mix i i told fans that i saw two pitchers who were pretty incredible on the farm and dylan bundy is one and hunter harvey is the other and I thought Hunter Harvey matched Dylan in talent, and, and very few pitchers had a year like Dylan had that year in 2012, was it, 11? I forget, the year after his draft. And so Hunter class, and he was ranked in 20, 30, 40 yep. in baseball by people like Keith Law. It's very high on Hunter Harvey. But now can he get healthy? And, I, and we have to be concerned that maybe he won't because it's been so long and things keep happening. Last thing, Steve, and that's uh, Chris Davis. Uh, obviously, doesn't look like he's going to be playing at all this weekend uh, and hasn't been for a few games now. Uh, was there any more insight into that and just, you know, they just decided that's it, shut it down? No insight, and that's kind of disappointing. That's a little bit more palace intrigue ever at uh, the Oral Clubhouse as to why Chris isn't playing. Now, fans don't want him to play. They're so down on him, so I don't think anybody's too upset. He's not in the lineup, but we never got a clear explanation. It obviously didn't have anything to do with his batting average because he's already qualified for the lowest average, and so you'd want to play to try to help your average. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this had anything to do with 200 strikeouts. I certainly hope not, Um, but I do think, Chris, this needs to be a winner where he needs to try new things. He, He clearly... His batting approach, as we've seen, did not look any different. Jim Palmer said as much when he called him out in May or June, whatever it was. He has to look different next year because what he's doing isn't working, and it hasn't worked for two years now. It's, this is not a homestand or a slump or a 20 games. Right. So if he wants to get back in the fans' good graces, the, the only way he can do it, the only way is to come back and have a monster year. And it doesn't have to be 53 homers, but it should probably be 33. And he needs to come back and be productive and not hit 180. And whatever he needs to do to do that, if he even is capable at this point, I think he needs to spend all winter doing it because what he's done hasn't worked, guys. And and you come to the point where it could be this, which will be the most distressing of all. It could be that Chris is just no longer a very good baseball player and is a bad baseball player. And if that's the reality then that's not great for the Orioles. I wrote a column for PressBox that came out September 15th, and I thought I put it in terms of what's realistic for Oriole fans to hope for because nobody should be hoping 
that, well, we'll just get through another couple of years of this misery. You know, uh, what, what you got to hope for is we can get 60% of what Chris was like offensively because defensively he's still a plus player. Uh, his effort is still plus running the bases. Uh, you, you know, you never hear that he didn't run a ground ball out. But we need 60% of those numbers that he was putting up in his prime, and that would still be 32 and 85. And I'll let the batting average be where it will, was, but I think, um, I think there is something to, to some of these left-handed players, and Chris is certainly one of them, left-handed sluggers, being swallowed up a little bit with, by the shift where suddenly they turn around and it's May 15th and their batting average is under 200. Uh, forget the power for a second, but I think they get their heads get really screwed up because they don't know how to work around the shift. Well, he is it's not going away. And yep. Major League Baseball will legislate against it, which I think would be ridiculous. You yep. shouldn't be able to tell the defense where, where they play. can play in yep. any sport. But it, let's say that they don't. It's not going away. So he has to figure out a way to combat it. And I, would, I will contend that they were shifting him in 2013 often. Mm-hmm. And he had a monster year. If you remember, a lot of his home runs went to left center. And he can't keep telling us he's going to bunt and then not bunt, which yep. this, has happened, this happens the second year in a row. And the other thing he failed in this year beyond his performance was to fall on the sword. Um, uh, a player like Trey Mancini... This kid cares so much, it just ate him up. It ate him up. He couldn't sleep, he told me yesterday, at points this season because of his slump. And Chris, um, and, I, and I'm sure it eats him up, too. He's telling Sports Illustrated he's been in tears this year. Right. But he doesn't, why, why does he tell them and not the local media? Well, yeah, exactly. And stand in front of us, the people who truly are there every day, who speak directly to his fans, and why doesn't he look into that camera and say, I killed the team this year? Because he did, and yeah. everybody knows it. And, and I've told young players who ask me about media, if you fall on the sword, the fans respect you, and it's over in two minutes. It doesn't mean anything. We all can see you stunk. So right. just say you stunk. Tomorrow's a new day. Yep. And Chris has, has never done that. He's, he's, he's referenced his poor year, but I just wish he – we're more um, owning of it, I guess, is the word. Yep. And um, that would have helped him, too, but he has chosen to not do that. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. I think he does care. Yeah, I do, too. And, but that, that's not why he's not letting the Baltimore fans see that. He's Steve Molesky, Mass and Steve on Twitter. Steve, many thanks. We'll grab you in a month or six weeks or so when we know some more of the details of the next parts of the rebuild. All right? All right, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. I'll see you at the park today. No, right. you, no, you won't. I think he's going to no, toss some football. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I love you. I'll be you. cheering on Tom Flacco today. Way he, to go. He's the, the elite quarterback in the family. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. See you later. It. Bye. All right. When we get back, uh, we will be joined by Steve Sparks of the uh, ti- of the Astros, not Tigers. He was a pitcher for the Tigers. He's part of the Astros broadcast booth. Uh, join up. Join Team Up for One and help children with challenges by attending third annual Sports Leadership Awards Bull and Oyster Roast on October 30th. The night will honor UMBC men's basketball coach Ryan Odom and raise money to help children with disabilities. For information and tickets to the Team Up for One Sports Leadership Awards at Valley Mansion, go to teamupforone.org. That's teamupforone.org. And Heisty, 
we've got to do a live spot for our friends at the Costas Inn. Yeah. Nick and Pete and the whole family. Yeah, and you shouldn't, well, you should go anytime, but right. you shouldn't just stay when they close the door and stay until 3 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's like you? <laughs> We've done that a few times. Yes. Anyway, and last night was one of them. Anyway, uh, you know, specials, great specials on the menu every single day of the week. Crab cake night beginning on Monday. Then it's rib night on Tuesday, uh, steak night on uh, Wednesday, along with jazz. You can you come in some of the best jazz around on Wednesday. Right. Uh, lobster night on Thursday, and it just goes right into the weekend. Rock and roll on, on Friday nights. 4100 North Point Boulevard for the best in uh, uh, crabs, crab cakes, crab soup. There is and, nothing bad on that menu, uh, folks. And everything is terrific at the Costas Inn. Tell Nick and Pete that Stan the Fan and Craig Heist sent you, the guys from the Batter Round. All right, joining us now on the Batter Round is someone uh, who I've never met, but uh, I always respected a knuckleballer, and Steve Sparks was uh, one of the, the dying breed, uh, pitching for Milwaukee, Detroit, the Angels, and uh, I'm leaving out one team in there that I just saw this morning, was it Arizona, Steve? Arizona and Oakland A's. Oakland A's, that's mm-hmm. right. Hey, before we talk about the Houston Astros, which was the main reason we brought you on, Steve Sparks sure. of the Astros broadcast booth, what is the deal? What What has happened that has taken us to the point where I can't think of a single knuckleball pitcher in the major leagues right now? There's one, and he's kind of carrying the torch right now. And it's Stephen Wright with the Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and, been, and I've got him on my fantasy team. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's been injured a lot of the year. Yeah. but he looks to have a prominent role in the bullpen for the Red Sox in in the postseason uh, as he's gotten healthy and he's pitching really well late. Uh, and he should be in somebody's rotation next year. I believe he's a free agent this year. Yep. And I think there's only a handful in the minor leagues right now that it, you know it's gone through waves in the past. You can look at certain certain periods, but, you know, then sometimes somebody will win the Cy Young like R.A. Dickey did five or six years ago, and then then you start to have, you know, more come out of the woodwork as teams will try to see if they can can get lucky, too. How hard is the pitch? In other words, tell me a little bit about your career. Were you a knuckleballer in the minor leagues, or did you go to the knuckleball out of, like, sort of a last resort? Yeah, it was more of a last resort. I was having trouble getting out of the double-A level. And actually, the Milwaukee Brewers at the time came to me uh, with a suggestion. I'd never thrown one. And gave me a three-year plan. You know, they wanted to up the percentage of throwing knuckleball from 30 to 50 to 70% and kind of take inventory where we were at at that point. And at that point, at the end of that third year, I was knocking at the door of making my debut in 1995. And what do you think if you, or maybe they communicated it to you at the time, what was it that they saw since you hadn't really thrown the pitch before that they thought, was it that the stuff was so bad that you had at the time? Or did they see something in your stuff that said this guy might be able to master this pitch? You know, I think they were just trying to give me every opportunity. They, you know, I was an organizational guy. Spent some time in their system, maybe five or six years at that point. And they wanted to exhaust their their chances for me, and they just felt like I'll tell you a couple of things that I think worked in my favor. A little shorter, I think, being six foot, being a little lower to the ground, easier to stay behind that pitch longer, which you need to do. Okay. 
Um, the other thing was pretty simple mechanics. And the third thing, and I'm not sure if they were aware of this or, or not, but this is something that I learned in, in meeting all the other knuckleballers and getting to know them and talk to them about it, is that everybody has a similar temperament. And it's kind of a laid-back, not mm-hmm. really excitable type of temperament. And those are the pitchers that, or the, the kind of personality you need to have to be able to throw that pitch in big situations in front of 35, 40,000 people on a 3-2 count with the bases loaded. Things like that. You just can't overthrow that pitch. And more excitable uh, type of personalities just don't, don't, don't seem to be able to handle that. It's the a- Astros, since I've taken this job, have asked me to work with a couple of uh, minor league knuckleballers uh, during spring training on occasion when they've had a guy uh, down in spring training. And I could tell right away, you know, within one or two minutes, just having conversations that temperament-wise, they're probably not going to be able to, to handle that pitch. Well, now, you, you mentioned something very interesting, and that's that you can't overthrow it. But there are some guys who do throw it where the knuckleball is 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 thrown harder, harder. than, than yeah, yeah, and R.A. Dickey was certainly one, but you know, sure. harder than you know maybe another guy. So I, I guess it's really just about all feel for the pitcher, right? It's feel for the pitcher, and, and if you watch Dickey, he's not overthrowing to get that velocity. It just right. happens to be he he was a he was a first round draft pick, and, and for good reason because he threw really hard coming out of University of Tennessee, and. He never really had an arm injury that caused him uh, to have to throw a knuckleball. He had to throw a knuckleball because his fastball was so straight. Mm -hmm. So he needed something else. But his arm strength was still really strong. And if he wanted to throw his fastball off of the same mechanics, he was still throwing 90 miles per hour. The Orioles have one knuckleballer in their system, and he was uh, he went to Texas for a year and a half in between. But Eddie Gamboa and Gamboa right. had worked with Phil Necro, and I interviewed Necro about three years ago, maybe four years ago, and he told me that Gamboa's knuckleball was as good as any he had seen, but he qu- never quite made it. Is is it is it that it's tough to to do it, throw it consistently? Is that mm-hmm. where the problem comes in? That's where the problem is. I mean, it's more so than any other pitch. Your mechanics almost have to be perfect to be able to start it in one place. You don't know which direction it's gonna it's gonna go once once the wind, the resistance of the the wind, kind of takes care of the scenes and makes the ball dance. But you're aiming basically for the catcher's face face mask and letting the ball fall from gravity and dance around and do whatever it does. But to stay behind the ball, you can't let your body get out ahead of your arm. It's just way more mechanical than than uh, other pitches. And if you're excitable, things like that, you get out of your mechanics. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And, uh, the other thing is, is when you're playing catch, it's much easier to throw a good knuckleball rather than getting on a mound because when you uh-huh. go downhill... You know, if your palm's not behind the baseball, if you're throwing downhill and you start to roll over those pitches, it stems just a little bit, get that little little subtle topple, and then it becomes bad in practice. Steve, let me ask you this. In the National League right now, I would say all of the teams that are in the playoffs and heading for the postseason have issues with their bullpens. I don't think you can name a team out there that's competing in the National League that doesn't have some kind of bullpen issues. But it looks like it looks like from the Astros standpoint, uh, all of a sudden, you know, in the last 
three weeks or so that this entire staff seems to have been coming together pretty well uh, and, and pretty much right at the right time for you guys. It has. And the bullpen has been underrated all season long. But the reason why I think they stayed so fresh compared to other teams is because the starters went so deep into the ball games. They threw more innings than anybody else. And then with the acquisition of Roberto Asuna and Ryan Presley, who kind of let everything else kind of gel into place, I think it ended up being something almost perfect for these guys to be able to round in. The Astros needed a couple starters to fill in to give some guys an extra two days on occasion uh, in the rotation, like a Garrett Cole. Uh, Burnlander got an extra day to start to go. So things like that have kept the starters intact as well. But uh, they're going to go as far as their horses can take them, though. Burlander and Cole at the top, and you can mix in Eichel and Morton after that. And then, you know, turning things over to a bullpen that's well-rested, very talented, and very diverse. And you guys know diversity in a bullpen to handle matchups means a lot. Tell me a little bit about, and I'm not asking you to break confidence or anything, how difficult was the acceptance of Roberto Asuna into that locker room? I mean, it, it seems like it's having a quote-unquote happy ending uh, right now with the way he's pitching and the way he's taking charge. But that was that was a bumpy ride, wasn't it, to bring him in? It was in. a bumpy ride, yeah. It was awkward. Nobody knew how to handle it. And for the players, I think it was just like, okay, he's in our clubhouse. What do we do? So you just try to get to know somebody. You right. know? And, and he can't talk about anything. So it's always lingering, I'm, I'm sure, in the back of your mind. But, and I think the awkwardness also comes from having to answer questions about it so often. And, yep. and A.J. Hinch, the manager, had to take the brunt of that. So basically every city uh, that the Astros went to, that became – you know, a part of the conversation you know, rather than baseball. That's, that's something you had to talk about. But he was very patient. Um, yep. In uh, the players now, it, it appears, I mean, things went very seamless. And to Roberto's credit, he's a very charming, very quiet, you know, he's very unassuming. He just comes in and does his job. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you're, you guys are all, you know, working for a common goal. And he fit in and he, and he pitched well, too. Tell me a little bit about why Houston is so so good at making changes with already more than established pitchers. And I'm really talking about what they were able to get out of Charlie mm-hmm. Morton, right. uh, ultimately Justin Verlander, and now what they've done with Ryan Presley. It's right. not just simply analytics. It's a refinement of analytics where they help the pitcher with the choice of what to throw, it seems like. Right, and it's Garrett Cole, too. So Garrett, and Garrett Cole, Cole yeah. 8.4 strikeouts per nine-inning pitch in his career right. up to 12.6, and it's one of the greatest jumps we've seen in the last 25 years. And you're talking about a pitcher who has some stuff, obviously, from the eye test, you can tell. But the Astros just felt like they could identify things in certain pitchers where if they up their pitch usage at certain pitches, particularly against certain handed batters. And that's what we've seen. We've seen... Cole go from a, hit, a pitcher who's kind of struggled against left-handed pitchers who's dominated. Charlie Morton did that before. And then you mentioned Ryan Presley, who the Astros tabbed from the Minnesota Twins at the trade deadline. Yeah. They felt like if he upped his usage of his breaking ball, which they thought was one of the best in the game, according to spin rate and things like that, then they think they, they really have an elite 
you know, bullpen piece. And that's, that's what it's looked like so far. I think spin rate, you know, when I was coming up through the minor leagues and I said, 10 years in the minor leagues as a starting pitcher, uh, the day before and the day after you start, you're behind home plate in the stands like a scout with a with a gun and you're charting pitches and things. And there was a lot of pitchers when I was coming up that threw 88, 89 miles per hour that would throw it right by guys. But we never knew why. You know, we just thought maybe he had some deception to his delivery. But now I realize it's forcing spin rate that deviates from the standard. If, if it's, you know, 300 more reps per, per minute faster than the normal, then it's almost an optical illusion to a hitter. You've always heard hitters talk about some pitcher's fastball rises, but it looks like it rises. It can't actually do it. But when it deviates from the standard, it's an illusion, and that's why you get the swing and miss, and that's what the Astros try to identify. So if I'm an opposing general manager and I want to improve my pitching staff, I think I enter into the uh, talking to the Astros and see who they want from my pitching staff and figure out what we're yep. missing on that guy. Well, all the, all the data is out there now. Yeah. You know, with StatCast and, you know, TrackMan and all that stuff, it's all out there. It's just being able to recognize certain things that your, your team might be missing at that point. Steve, were you a, a huge baseball fan growing up? I was, yeah. yeah. I had a morning paper out from third grade to college, and I spent 90% of my money on baseball cards. Yeah, so, I fell in love with it really early. So my question is, is the game there still able to be loved by fans at the same way, even if they don't understand spin rates and analytics yeah. and all that? Is the game still approachable and for fans? I think it is because of social media. They can almost kind of get to know a personality of a player. We really didn't have that, did we? You know, we knew no. statistics and we knew what their off-season jobs were and things like that. But now with social media, you really get a chance to, to know players. And I'm not big on social media. And I think some of the mystery was kind of cool. Yeah. You know, being able to watch, you know, Willie Mays or somebody and just think that he's this fun-loving. But we never really know these people completely but uh as a kid and i think as a fan it's always fun to have a little bit of mystery behind these players and just enjoy what they did for a living you said something very interesting there <clears throat> pardon me off-season jobs Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yo, you know, around here, Boog Pal always talked about that. You know, yeah, he we, was a liquor salesman uh, or something. Yeah, like that. you know, whether you you you, so you delivered the mail or right. do yeah, it was right. it's amazing. Uh, yeah, Al Kaline. We, we talk yep. to Al Kaline a lot when we go up to Detroit. One of my favorites of all time. And he's a Baltimore native, as mm -hmm. you all know. Yep. But he talks about his off-season jobs. I mean, <laughs> what was he? Uh, Twenty-three time All Star, or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, Hall of Famer, but. Uh, as soon as he was done with his playing career with Detroit, he he forged so many cool relationships in the area that he went right to work right when his, right when his career was done with whatever he was doing in the offseason. Before we let you go, without asking you a prediction, uh, I do want to ask you about one guy that you got to witness the past couple of years, which is Alex Cora uh, as mm -hmm. a bench coach under A.J. Hinch in Houston. Does it right. surprise you at all how successful he's been in, in Boston? With his first no, managerial very, gig? No, very smart. Um, I think he learned a lot from A.J. Hench, you know, as far as making sure he communicated, made sure that different cultures in the clubhouse communicated with each other and just built a, an environment uh, 
where you paid attention to detail, you prepared really well, and outside of that, just have as much fun as you can. And I think when you do that, your fundamentals are tight, and you, your team has talent. Obviously, the Red Sox are super talented, but you have somebody that kind of gets it. Um, I think Alex Corum is a perfect fit um, for the Red Sox company. It's funny, they hired Alex Cora, I think a week, maybe five days, before I saw Dave Dombrowski last offseason, our, our daughters happened to be in the same sorority at the same college. That's small world. And yeah. I saw him last November. He said, man, this, I just hired Alex Cora. He said, what can you tell me about him? I said, you made a good hire. He said, right. well, you never know. You go through these interviews, and we interview him for a couple of hours, and you never really know for sure, but mm-hmm. you know, he just wanted to talk about him a little bit, find out what I knew about him. He's, he's, he's on top of his game. He's, he's a great pick for them. Hey, just a quick uh, last thing. Um, we're we're going into this rebuild here. Nobody knows exactly whether Dan's going to be back as vice president of baseball ops, right. Buck in the managerial thing. I'm not putting him out as a potential manager of the Orioles, but you got to know Richie Dower, I'm guessing, over the last couple uh-huh. of years. Did, did Dower retire or, or leave the Astros because he had had it with baseball, or might he be an interesting person to, to get back in uniform as a bench coach? Well, I, I don't want to speak for Richie. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. One thing is, when the Astros had their World Series parade last year, he had a traumatic oh, I, episode. I know the whole story about that. Okay, so, so, so that rules him out of probably being that back was, in that was part. That was part of yeah. uh, the reason why he, he was going to be out of baseball this okay. year. Okay. And we've seen him since. And he had a, a miraculous full recovery. And we all love Richie yep. to death. But uh, I'm not sure. You know, okay. I, I think when you, when a team decides to, to go a different direction, I think transparency for the fan base yep. is essential. I think the Astros did well in that regard. And to spend money at the right time. I mean, it, And it's not about tanking or anything else. It's just being fiscally responsible and doing things the right way. And you got to be you have to have a good development program in place to, to help these guys become pretty good major leaguers in short order once they make it. All right. We really appreciate it. First time I got to meet you and talk to you. Really enjoyed the, the conversation, Steve Sparks. My pleasure, guys. Y'all take care. All right. Have a great postseason. All right. There you Thank go. You. Member of the broadcast booth of the Houston Astros, Steve Sparks. Are we going to go make our connection with Steve Jeppy and then take a break, or are we behind? Um, it all depends. We are having te- uh, technical difficulties S- with the computer, so we I'm not sure are. if we can still uh, if we can play the commercial breaks. We kind of have to. Why test don't you it. so? Why don't you test it? And if all not, right. I'll do a live read for Big Bats, and uh, we'll move on from there. Sounds all right. good. All right. Should I jump in with a Big Bats spot? Um. Yeah, go for it. All right. We'll tell you a little bit about Ken Island's original sports bar, 216 St. Clair Place in Stevensville, Maryland. Whether you're on the way down or back to or from the eastern shore, there's no place better to stop, relax, and eat. Great place to watch the O's, Nats, Wizards, Caps, and simply grab the best bar grub around. Sandwiches, salads, soups, and subs. It's all there for you at Big Bat's. Ken Island's original sports bar, and if you stop by, tell Steve Garland that Craig Heist 
was not wearing the Big Bats t-shirt today. No, my alma mater instead. Just Sports Science Academy, Kenwood High. Yeah. So, Kenwood High, are you familiar with the great story of Dave Patrick, the runner from Kenwood High? Mm, yeah, well, Dick Patrick was... Uh, not D- Dave Patrick, I'm sorry. What did I say? Dave Patrick. Dave, well, yeah. Yeah, Dave Patrick. Go ahead. Yeah. His son works for us here. Oh, okay. And I got to meet his dad, and we had him on the TV show talking about his history as one of the great milers uh, for the U.S. or any other country. Well, uh, there was a, uh, a phys ed teacher, but was also a coach of several sports at Kenwood. Right. Dick Patrick. Right. Uh, his daughter, Terry Patrick, right. was uh, the mascot, the bluebird. Okay. You know, at, at all the games and things of that nature. So did I not mean, know that? No. So. I wonder if they're related, Dave Patrick and Dick uh, Patrick. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I don't right. know that. I'll have to find that out. But anyway, Dave Patrick <laughs> was at one time, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated back in 1968. This is, in the next couple of weeks, will be the 50th anniversary of, of the 68 Summer Games in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. How no, about that? No answer? We're not getting an answer from our guest. Hold on. So Hold on. It's, uh, you look at the Houston Astros, though, and what they've been able to accomplish, uh, and, and I'm, I'm talking about a team that when they were losing 100 – when they were in the National League, and Jose Altuve was coming into D.C. and playing baseball, and I, I just absolutely raved about this guy. Not that I was any kind of a talent evaluator, but you could tell he knew how to play the game, the way he played it, the hustle, uh, straight on down the line. And I always used to say, look, this is going to be a real, real good player. And then there, there it is a few years later. He's leading this team to the World Series, and uh, – you root for guys who are five foot five or five foot six, and Altuve certainly is one of those guys. Uh, but he's just a phenomenal player, and I think really the kind of straw that stirs that whole drink for the Astros. Yeah, Jose Altuve. No, I just, no question about it. Yeah, and no I, it just makes everybody else around him better. But I am fascinated by the topic we got into with Steve Sparks about how their analytics people have taken that thing where they can acquire a pitcher. And not just coach him to be better, but show him sort of analytically why you'll be better if you do that. And I didn't know that. I knew Garrett Cole was having a terrific year, and I knew I wanted him in my fantasy league. But to go from 8.4 strikeouts to Mm 12.1, that's remarkable. That's an amazing jump. That's an amazing jump. Absolutely. Speaking of an amazing jump, we're joining our friend Steve Jeppe president of Diamond Comics, and also the owner of Baltimore Magazine. Steve, how are you this morning? I'm good, guys. How are you? We're good, and you're on with, you You know me, of course, but Craig Heist. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and you guys know each other. Hey, we wanted to have you on, Steve, um, uh, not so much to beat around and talk about what's going to happen with the Orioles, but you and I lost a dear friend this week, and he was a dear friend to anybody that was a baseball fan or anybody that had a collectible, um, Dick Gordon. What a shame. What a wonderful human being Dick Gordon was. And he is going to be missed immensely, not only by his family and friends, but by people in the baseball world. He, you know, Dick kind of flew under the radar, but he was probably as influential as anybody I know in that field. 
Was he, you know, we all know that he represented people such as Frank Robinson, Earl Weaver, Louis Aparicio, Carl Yastrzemski, uh, Ted Williams, and Joe DiMaggio. But he was also a very sophisticated guy when it came to evaluating the value of things, wouldn't you say? I would definitely say that. And in a world where there's a lot of fraud, particularly in the baseball memorabilia world, if you bought something from Dick, you know it was solid, you know it was authentic, you know it was good, because he was in the business early on when that all started to come about. And in addition to that, Dick's reputation was impeccable. So I never felt uncomfortable about anything that Dick told me because I knew it had to be the truth. Um, Dick, for a long time, represented, as I just rolled out a litany of the biggest names in the business, and it was interesting that both the Ted Williams connection and the Joe DiMaggio connection actually started from the Carl Yastrzemski connection. Did you know that? Someone mentioned that to me the other day at the funeral. I didn't know that prior to that, but that makes some sense. Yeah, you know, Yaz, of course, um, uh, uh, the the second generation, if you will, Boston superstar baseball player, uh, won a couple batting titles, won the MVP, and hit for the Triple Crown. But it was through his representation of Carl Yastrzemski that Ted Williams sort of witnessed that relationship and asked Yaz uh, who this guy Dick Gordon was. Exactly, and I never got to meet Yaz. That was one of the things I was hoping to do through Dick. He had often yeah. said to me, you got to come up to one of these events and meet him. But evidently, Yaz loved Dick and his wife, Gloria, and no doubt felt very comfortable in recommending uh to other players or even other managers, as we remember, Earl Weaver, our dear friend, was also on this list of clients. He had uh, Dick Williams, I think, uh, and Willie Mays, even. I'm not even sure about that one, but I remember him telling me some stories. And of course, no one told stories about baseball better than Dick. Do you have one story in particular that uh, rings a bell with you if you're asked about a story? Because I could sit around with him as we did at my house on occasions and just hear him tell stories for, you know, literally a couple hours. Yeah, we did it a couple times, if you recall. Yep. The story I always tell is not so much about uh, another player, but about Earl Weaver. And I mentioned this, I think, in the obituary that I was honored to be included in. You know, uh, we went up to the Hall of Fame for Earl's induction, and you have to be a family member or a Hall of Famer yourself to stay at the Otisago, which is the main right. Hall of Fame hotel. And through the magic of Dick Gordon, I was able to stay at the Otisago Hotel under the dubious uh, alias of Steve Jeppy, Earl Weaver's brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <laughs> you sly dog. <laughs> not my, not my, Steve's. My yeah. Earl in check on Saturday night so he wouldn't overdo it. Right. And I remember sitting uh, right behind his wife, Mariana, while he was up on the podium giving his acceptance speech. Uh, my sorry face was on ESPN for a while there because I was sitting right behind her. But Earl did a magnificent job uh, of giving a speech. And then, of course, that night he made up for what he didn't do the night before. Right. <laughs> we all had a blast. Dan usual playing his harmonica. But that was Dick Gordon. There wasn't anything that you wanted or thought could be possible, but always thought it was, you know, kind of iffy. 
Just right. said, no problem, let me take care of it. And next thing you know, it would happen. You know, one of the stories that he most took joy in telling was the story how Earl had asked him about a year before he died, said, you know, uh, I, want you to, I want you to run my memorial service. And he sort of nodded and said, yeah. And then when Earl tragically passed, Mariana called him and said, Dick, we need you to run this thing. And he loved to tell the story about how, how he not only got a recording of the Earl of Baltimore, he actually got Terry Cashman to fly down at the last minute to Florida to sing the Earl of Baltimore. I remember that story. And another one for me was, uh, there was a dubious collectible that I have buried somewhere here. Yeah. Earl got me a ball signed by Roberto Alomar and John Hirschbeck. Now there's a combination you wouldn't expect to see. <laughs> and you know that Hirschbeck didn't find it no, not at all. I mean, you know, the, the funny part about that is for, for, for as blown up as that got in that game, second game at the end of the regular season that year, and then Alamar winds up getting suspended, then those two turns out to be the best of friends because Robbie has done so much for, for Hirschbeck's for organization. Yeah. charity thing, yeah. I remember seeing when the first time they were on the field again together, uh, Robbie, who was a good friend of mine, walked up with his glove hand and put it on the shoulder of Hirschbeck and obviously mentioned some conciliatory words, and it doesn't surprise you to that. And sometimes things that start off really bad end up cementing a great relationship. So if you're a positive person, you try to take the negative and turn it into a positive, and I think that's what they did there. It was unfortunate. Now, this is just Steve Jeffy's speculation, <laughs> But I remember when, after was it uh, Tony Fernandez hit the home run to beat us in Cleveland, we were up and the last out we had a man on with a chance to win with a two-run homer, and Alomar got punched out on an inside pitch, and I always thought that was revenge. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my my favorite uh, uh, my favorite Dick Gordon story was the one he told me, and it's funny. It ha it has its genesis sitting in your office one time talking business with you. I turned around and I saw a box of checks written by written or signed by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the guy who did Tarzan. Mm -hmm. And I had never before thought of the value of checks, but Dick Gordon told me a story once that showed me what a, a literally a genius he was. And I don't know if you remember this one. Oh, I know the story you're going to tell. Please yeah, tell it. It's yeah. a great one. Dick, Dick Gordon's flying with Joe DiMaggio, and I think they left. Dallas to fly back to New York or something, and Joe DiMaggio, by the way, was known as not the nicest guy in the world, and Joe used to get paid with first-class transportation in every deal he did. He would then take the first-class transportation, trade it in, get $300 or $400 cash, and fly coach. Mm -hmm. Well, he's, he's in the waiting area for this particular airline, and the place goes nuts that they see Joe DiMaggio's there, and everybody's coming up to get autographs and everything like that. The guy comes from behind the counter and says, Mr. DiMaggio, we're so honored that you're flying with us, and we're so, you know, we, we're sorry that you're being bothered by this many people. We'd like to upgrade you to first class. And Joe goes, that's good. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Dick Gordon goes, well, what about me, Joe? And he goes, You'll fly in the damn back where you belong. And Dick was, <laughs> I want to fly up front with you. We got business to talk about. 
He says, how about my friend? He said, I'm sorry, Mr. DiMaggio. We'll have to charge you an upgrade for, for your friend. He says, how much is it? It's like $145. DiMaggio pulls out his checkbook, writes American Airlines, if that was the airline, $145, hands it to the guy. Dick And Joe DiMaggio goes to the bathroom. It took Dick Gordon all of about, what, eight, ten seconds? He walks up to the guy behind the counter and says, my friend, Mr. DiMaggio, gave you that check, and Dick pulls out $144 and says, we wanted to pay cash. Give me that check back. And Dick Gordon put that check in his pocket. And I'm just asking you, Steve, is that $144 check, which, first of all, never got cashed, that check's probably worth three or $4,000, isn't it? It could very well be a signed, and particularly an uncashed check, I would think, bring a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was always my argument to the, uh, the today's fast-paced technology world, the paperless society. I said, yeah, you guys would be sitting there looking at Xeroxes of Jackie Robinson checks when the real checks are worth money, and you would have shred them. Yep. That's fascinating. That is. Speaking of that, and just to get off a of dick for just a second, um, this this world that we're living in where the Baltimore Ravens, and I'm not judging it or anything, they went to ticketless entry this year. Uh, I thought they rolled it out poorly, but it really isn't that big a deal to use it, the technology. But are we missing something with the, the loss of, of actual tickets and ticket stubs? Well, historically, ticket stubs were uh, significant depending on an event. Like, for example, if you go to any game, and I always make it a point, I never throw my ticket away till I see what happens, and after right. maybe the first hit in the game, there's no longer a no-hitter or a perfect game in life. But people like to have, I still have uh, tickets from games that I went to, or uh, was a new, unfortunately it was against us, the Avis pitched a no-hitter against the Orioles, and I had that ticket. But yeah, uh, the tangibility is, is important for collectors. We Like in the comic book business that I'm in, People don't, I know there are digital comics now, but people don't want Stan Lee, the creator of Spider-Man, to sign their iPad. Yeah. Right. They want the book. Right. We're talking with Steve Jeppe, owner of Diamond Comics, largest comic book distributorship in the world, and uh, also owns Baltimore Magazine amongst a whole host of other Jeppe family enterprises. Before we let you go, Steve, we've talked about Dick Gordon. We talked uh, just a moment about collectibles. Uh, be remiss if I didn't ask you. You are the most optimistic Oriole fan that I've ever known. Uh, this has been, without a doubt, the toughest season, even far tougher than 1988. Do you see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, or are we not far enough into the tunnel yet? Well, keep in mind that the Houston Astros lost over 100 games three years in a row. Right. Someone just sent me a list of the worst teams ever. There was a team, I don't know, 18 daddies that won 20, 20 games and lost 130, some ridiculous number. But uh, I am optimistic, not Pollyanna-ish. I, I really believe that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. And I told my son, who turned 38 recently, that when I turned 38, it was 1988. And the Orioles had what then was the worst season ever. Yep. He just turned 38, and it's an even worse season. I said, so if things follow suit, Steve Jeppe, when's the Orioles what, almost won it? What, so but, maybe, <laughs> but what year is Steve Jeppe going to turn? Stevie Jeppe going to turn thirty-eight? I may yeah, get we an advance. Down the trail of that, that would be two thousand thirty-nine. I'm hoping around to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, uh, we picked up some young players, and like you watch his kids, Cedric Mullins, uh, DJ Stewart. 
you, you never know. It's the Wally Pip syndrome, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy sits out a game and a guy named Lou Gehrig steps in, and next thing you know, a lot of players that became great players never really were touted as great players. I remember Tommy Lasorda telling me the story about um, uh, about uh, his, his, his nephew, um, why am I Mike, P- Mike Piazza. Mike, Mike Piazza, yeah. Mike Piazza was like, they sent Tommy to the East Coast or something for X dollars to give to, he was supposed to go to Canada to sign some young guy that was top pick or whatever. And he went and scouted him, and I guess you could argue that it was profit bias because it was related, but he said to them, I'm not going to Canada. Give the money to this kid. This right. kid's in the Hall of Fame now. And he was like number whatever, <laughs> right. long down the list of athletes. So guys develop later. I'm a big believer in that not letting somebody die on the vine at AAA. Let them make all their mistakes in the big leagues. And for, Nick Marquette is a good example of that. They brought him up rather quickly. I always thought that was because he was Greek and Peter was Greek. <laughs> but he came up and he got to make his mistakes in the first year of Major League as opposed to the last year of the minor leagues. And he blossomed into a great player and is having a great year this year. So my optimism is not rooted in uh, just silliness. I really believe that when you hit rock bottom, you've got nothing to lose. And this is true in just everything, not just in sports. Right. It's true in business. Sometimes when you hit rock bottom, you get a little hungrier. You make a little better decisions. When you're a fat cat, you tend to get careless, as in business, financially. You could get, oh, we can afford it, we can afford it. But if you're hurting, you tend to make decisions a lot better. And I think that's what the Orioles have been doing. I was really pleased to see the other day at Dick's funeral uh, three good friends, well, really four. It was Rick Schulte, uh, Ray Schulte was there, but also saw sure. Steve Freeman, Bill Stetka, and, of course, Dan Duquette, which meant a lot to me to see Dan yep. there. With all that's going on in the Orioles, he took time out to see be and pay his respects to his dear friend Dick Gordon. Yep, and he knew Dick extremely well because of Dick's relationship with the Boston Red Sox through Ted Williams mm-hmm. and Carl Yastrzemski. Steve, one question. I'm not going to ask you to get into who's going to be the manager, who's going to be this. When would you think... <laughs> but what the, do you think? <laughs> no, but what, no. When, when would you think is the right time for the organization with where it's out, with where it's at, to explain to its fans what the next steps are going to be here? Well, the one thing about baseball and sports in general is there's a, there's a calendar yep. that has dates on it that things have to be done by. And a lot of decisions that will have to be done just by ordinary course in baseball require a manager and a general manager to be in place. So I would think it would be crazier for us not to make a decision very soon because you can't wait until those dates pass and then have the guy stuck with the decisions that were made he had no involvement in. So I would think that as soon as this season's over, you're going to hear... I'm sure that the guys are working on talking to prospects now. Yeah, I don't know anything about who's doing what. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, kind of hoping that Dan Duquette stays. Yeah, uh, I don't know even if Buck wants to stay. To tell you the truth, you know, but I, I think he'd want to. Yeah, if they see an opportunity here, Buck's always been good with young teams and developing, you know, in a fatherly way these young players. So that's still don't rule that out. A lot of speculation in the paper. But I think they got to make that decision really soon because of the calendar in baseball. Uh, one last quickie. Eddie Murray and Brooks Robinson were brought back into the fold as actual working members of Baltimore Orioles with real contracts. Do you think Cal Ripken will somehow be a part of this next era of Oriole baseball? I would like to see that. Yep. I don't know that that will happen. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's just too many balls in the air. Cal's schedule. He's got a whole yep. other life now. And 
you know, he's in the, uh, in the media, you know, he does things for the Major League Baseball or the sports networks. Uh, but I think having Eddie and Brooks was one of the best moves we ever did. Yep. And I don't think, as Eddie clearly stated when he was, you know, asked to do that, he's not a figurehead. He really wants to be involved with these young players. These guys miss baseball, and I think nobody could give better examples of Oriole way than these two. Yeah, first thing I'd do with Eddie Murray is send him down to Dallas, Texas, or wherever Chris Davis lives, and I'd ask them to spend like three weeks together working on some things. I'll tell you what. A guy doesn't hit 53, 47, 38, 33 a couple times without having the talent to do it. There is a switch that can be thrown there. I don't give up on Chris, Chris Davis at all. I was a big advocate of that signing, so yep. blame me if anything. But I yep. tell no. you what. A lot that of guy's people. Got the talent. He can do it. There's no question in my mind, and I, I'm not giving up on him either. I haven't either. And I, I really, Steve, have a hard time with a lot of these fans, and I do a lot of different talk shows during the course of a week or a month. And these these people who are yelling and screaming about this contract, they all wanted them back. They all wanted them back. Yep. And the, there was uh, a time, there was a time where they said we would have got criticism for not spending the money. Well, exactly. You know, I was going to say there was a time where everybody was saying, well, they'll never re-sign him. They'll never do this. They'll never do that. And then it turns out Bordick gets signed. It turns out they spent the money. And, you know, obviously the last two years for Chris, it hasn't worked out, but there's not a person. Well, everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. We as fans reserve the right to be hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, I but, guess, but still, you know, uh, remember. He started hitting 50 home runs again. Those same people would turn around. Uh, he's a great first baseman. I think he got screwed a couple of years ago when he should have won gold glove. Uh, he has picked more Manny Machado throws, and even J.J. Hardy's out of the dirt. He was like what Boog was to Brooks. Right. And I think Davis is, you know, nobody's struggling more with it mentally yep. than him. And it's like they say, be a rooter, not a ragger. You know, try to encourage somebody. When you're ragging on somebody, you don't help the cause, you hurt the cause. If you're not part of the solu solution, you're part of the problem. Right. Steve Jeppe, we appreciate your spending some time and reminiscing about Dick Gordon. I've said that about you all the time. What, if you're not I'm part a, of the solution, <laughs> you're the problem. <laughs> Thanks, Steve, for reiterating well, thank that. Thank you guys for the honor of being on your show. It's a great show, and uh, keep up the good work. All right, Steve. Appreciate it. Appreciate your friendship. Bye -bye. All right. Great guy. Great guy. All right. We've got an interview that we're going to try. We've had some technical problems today, but we're. why don't you set up the interview? Well, it's, it's Ryan Zimmerman. I had a chance to sit down with him on Thursday, and, or actually Wednesday, before the uh, last home game down in D.C., uh, and, and we just talked a little bit about the overall, uh, you know, disappointment or yeah. frustration of this season. Yeah, different level those, than the Orioles. But those were two different words that were thrown around all, all week long in talking to various players. Frustration and disappointment. And I asked Zimmerman what his take was on that. No, it's not going to be. We're not going to be. We're not going to be able to do it. Well, right. I'll tell you what why we will you, do. Why don't you play it in your in your best words? Well, basically, I'll play Zimmerman. Basically, what he said was, I mean, it's the common sense answer for it. Right. Yeah, we're disappointed, but the frustration end of it, knowing that you come to the field every day, you come to the ballpark, you expect to win. There's not a guy out there that's not trying to win. You're battling through injuries. You're battling through slumps. 
You're battling through some guys who are supposed to perform, Tanner Roark, for example, right. who went basically two months and couldn't get anybody out. And then all of a sudden, the all-star break comes and goes, and he winds up getting his season turned around a little mm-hmm. bit before, you know, he's recently had a, a, he and his wife recently had a child, so he's been away from the team down in Atlanta for the last couple of weeks. Right. So, I mean. Is that kind of like how Pat Rapp turned his season no, around? No, no. But the other part of that is Scherzer. Yeah. You're, you're looking at a guy who has been shut out four different times. Right. He's lost a bunch of games. Uh, seven, but I say a bunch for him. But eh, don't worry about it, Britt. He, he's lost a, a, a bunch of games in terms of the, the fact that he could have won them had the team scored a little bit uh, of runs for him. Uh, he's given up two, three, and still came out on the losing game or got no decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a guy like Bryce Harper, here's a guy hitting 209 at the end of June. 215th the All-Star break. He wins the home run derby in front of his hometown crowd. Right. And then all of a sudden, second half of the season starts. What's he finishing at 250? Well, he was at 246 right. the other day. Right. But so he's got 30, 34 homers and 100 RBI. He's 100 RBI hit. for the first time in his career. Yeah. it's probably He's probably hit over 300 since like May 15th mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. All so, right. I mean, from that standpoint, some things have gotten straightened out and gone in the right direction. Plus, with the with the starting rotation, now that's something they're going to have to go out and get straightened away in the offseason. They probably need one, more than likely need two. because Gio probably Because Gio's not, not coming back, right, right uh, after being dealt away to the Brewers. And that's going to be now they clinched a playoff spot last night, so we'll wait and see how he does in the postseason right. uh, for the Brewers. Now, keep in mind, he, had, he won 21 games his first year with the Nats, and yet, in that series against the Cardinals that year, he failed to go past five innings in both right, of his starts. Right. So, again... This, play, this this series of playoff matchups is going to have a, a ton of pitchers that have not had good luck. Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers, if the Dodgers are in the playoffs. The it entire, looks, the entire Red like Sox starting now. staff. The, the entire Red Sox starting staff and Jim Gonzalez, another example. Yeah. Hey, um, you you got to cover uh, Andy McPhail for a while and mm-hmm. Matt Klintak here. The way the Phillies collapse, they're going to finish under five hundred now. It looks it, like it, yeah, it, they they have just been awful the last six weeks. Do you think it's a a fate accompli that Gabe Kapler is back there, or could you see with, with them clearly ready to spend some money? To get a Harper or a Machado, could you see a guy like a Buck Showalter? I was just going to say, if Buck isn't around here, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate if I'm Andy McPhail to pull that trigger in a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I, you know, Kapler took a lot of heat for some boneheaded decisions in the first two or three weeks of the season. Uh, he got it squared away a little bit. He's the kind of guy you walk into the office after the after the game is over with, right? And he gives an opening statement accentuating the positives about what happened in the game, win or lose. Right. Okay, before he'll open it up for questions. Uh, and and I, uh, the, maybe the first manager I've ever seen or covered or been around that's done that. And it's a little awkward, especially if they get blown out, mm-hmm. you know, where he'll try to bring up a positive out of a game such as that. So that, that to me is a little weird, wacky, if you will. I just have a gut feeling that now that they've been up close with him for a year, mm-hmm. and it's sort of, I compared a little to Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, 
when they hired Dale Sfame to be the rebuilding block manager, and after one year they said, nah, yeah, maybe not. not. Yeah. Maybe not. So Yeah, but but it would not surprise me to see him back either. You well, know. No, it wouldn't be a shocker. No. I mean, I'd probably say it's a 75% chance he'll be back. I'll bet most people think it's like 100%. I mean, back. well, it's, <laughs> Ryan Sandberg stayed there for a little while. So. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, we are going to be unable to play our interview with uh, one Ryan Zimmerman, but we still got some more show for you, uh, and that show is going to include uh, Mark, Mark Zuckerman, Zuckerman from MassInSports.com, and yep. we're going to make our connection with Mark momentarily. Um is Maryland off this week? Yes. They so they are They 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 have yeah, they are off. What do they come back with? Do you know? Uh do do I want to say Michigan. At College Park? No, at Michigan. At Michigan. Okay. At the big house. At the big house. At the big house. With 105 strong, 105,000 strong. Well, so <sighs> it's it's a tough place to play, no question about it. All right. Yeah, there and uh, you know the the Nats lost last night five two to the Rockies, and their right. former their former uh, teammate Ian Desmond hit a home run in the game. Uh, so kind of coming back a little bit to haunt haunt their uh, for his former mates, but uh, that secured a playoff spot uh, for Colorado. Yeah, the Colorado Rockies are definitely in the playoffs, but uh, I predicted at the beginning of the week that the Rockies were going to win out over the Phillies. And the um, and the Nats, yeah. and I thought that the Dodgers had a little tougher last week of the season playing Arizona, a team that loves to beat them, and playing uh, the San Francisco Giants. But the Dodgers did win Game One against the Giants uh, last night. Joining us now is a very fine baseball writer, uh, and that's Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. How are you guys doing today? Good. I was so impressed with you the other day when I was on Mid-Atlantic Sports Report that when Heist and I were talking about this show, I said, get me Zuckerman. That's what I said. And <laughs> well, he said, well, the ratings boost, I'm sure. Right? Hey, of well, there course, there's no question all, about all, it. All, all the people who think they're tuning in to hear the Facebook guy, I'm <laughs> very disappointed right now to be hearing me instead. Are, are, you, are you ready for Michigan Northwestern? Um, no, because I have no faith in my guys after losing to Akron. <laughs> Yeah, the well. most recent game, and that, by the way, was Akron's first win over a Big Ten team since '94. Yeah, 1894. Yeah, <laughs> 1894. That's that's yeah. that's a ways back there. Yeah, let me ask yeah. you. Let me yeah. ask you about the game last night. Uh, Joe Ross uh, went five, right? And uh, what did this stuff look like? Because I thought. You know, even though he had the one rain-shortened game and then actually had two starts, you know, I thought he, I thought he was throwing the ball pretty well. What did you see last night? Yeah, I think, again, the stuff was fine. Uh, maybe by that last inning, he was losing it a little bit. The biggest issue was um, he just wasn't able to keep the ball down, and in that ballpark, uh, you have to be able to do that. And he gave up three homers, and that was all the offense against him, essentially. So, um, you know, I think he was a little disappointed, I think, that, over the three official starts he made, four sort of starts because of the rainout, um, I think he would have liked to have performed a little better, would have liked the numbers to look a little better. But deep down, he knows the biggest thing was that his arm was 100% healthy. Mm -hmm. The velocity was there. Um, you know, the stamina was there. He pitched five-plus innings and got up to 100 pitches, um, you know, in pretty short amount of time since coming back from Tommy John surgery. So that's all there. 
and now we can go into the off season and have just a, a typical off season and come to spring training ready to go next year. So, in the big picture, that was the most important thing. Um, I think probably he would have loved to have at least one just really good quality start uh, down the stretch here, but from the team's perspective, that was secondary to just making sure that he was healthy again. Is Max going to pitch tomorrow in the finale? It's going to depend on what happens tonight, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, the Rockies' magic number now is two. Uh, to for the division. The division. For, right. the division. for the division. Yeah. They clinched the playoffs last night. But they have a chance. They have, they've never won the division before in their 26 yeah. seasons. Um, they and the Marlins are the only teams that have never done it. So uh, they're gunning for that tonight. If they clinch, and now there's nothing at stake tomorrow, I think Max will sit. And uh, I'm guessing it's Eric Fetty or a bullpen game or something like that tomorrow. I'm not exactly sure what the alternative would be. Um, yeah, It was interesting. I think Max is the competitor. He wants to be out there, especially if the game means something. But he admitted that after his last start, and that was you know when he struck out the 300th batter, mm-hmm. the game was at home, big ovation, a lot of lot of emotion that night that he sort of mentally kind of thought that would be it mm-hmm. and so i think he's a little surprised once he realized oh wait this game may still mean something uh and that the nationals want him to pitch if it does mean something and so he, he admitted it may take a little bit of a switch to turn himself back on um but he's been preparing for it he threw his bullpen session he's doing everything he needs to do and if he gets out there tomorrow and there's a full house and the Rockies are playing on the last day of the season to try to win a division for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure those competitive juices are going to be flowing. Well, there's no question. I said that on the postgame show uh, on Tuesday night when somebody called in and asked if Max was going to pitch, and I said, my guess is he will pitch only if it means something uh, to the Rockies, and it certainly looks like Correct. It, that yeah. could, be the, could be the difference tomorrow. I guarantee you the Dodgers will certainly want him pitching if, if it plays <laughs> yeah, out yeah. where they – now, let me ask you a question, Mark, and this is a terrible admission for me to make because I've covered baseball for a long, long time, think I know all the rules. If the if the Rockies and the Dodgers end up in a flat-footed tie tomorrow night, do they play a game to determine who who is the wild card and who is the yeah. who is the winner yeah, of the mon- division? Mon- Monday. I they think play on Monday. Monday, and the same thing applies to the Cubs and Brewers. And so yes. even okay. though... Both teams would already know that they're in. Right. They would play the tiebreaker to see who's the division winner and then who plays the wild card game the next night. And that creates a real dilemma because if you're managing that team and you're saying, am I going to throw everything I have at winning this game to try to get to a five-game series? Right. Or am I going to hold back and say, hey, I need in case we lose, I want my ace or I want my best relievers or whatever tomorrow for a do-or-die game. It, it's, it's, it's an fa- interesting dilemma, it's, not something I, that they've ever had to deal with. Yeah, it's fascinating, but bo- the f- one thing that's fair about that is both teams face the same decision process. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, we're talking with uh, Mark Zuckerman uh, of MassInSports.com. Um, you've covered the Nats now for their entire existence, right, in Washington? Yep, 14 seasons. Okay. So you've got to watch firsthand all the managers they've had. Where do you think Dave Martinez is right now? I know you're probably, in my in my opinion, you're probably certainly in favor of him coming back. Do you think he had some opening jitters, and do you think he can be better than this, or do you think he's as good as he was, and that's what we've got? I, I do think he can get better at certain things. I think bullpen management, which really, you know, almost every manager in baseball 
has some kind of issue with bullpen management. I've, I've seen very few who are, perf- are perfect at that. Probably the best I've seen, you guys would know well, too, is Davey Johnson. Mm-hmm. I thought was a, a genius at managing a bullpen. But the vast majority of guys, that is always the thing they struggle with. So, But I think there are things he can learn, and I think he did show improvement over the course of the season in that regard. I think he's also probably learned what how to strike the right balance between having fun and getting down to work. And I, I would imagine spring training is going to be a little bit different <laughs> next year, maybe a little more emphasis on some fundamentals and things. Not that I think the reason they had the season they had is because they brought camels out on one day of spring training or that they didn't work hard enough. Uh, you know, it's an easy and I think personally lazy narrative to try to uh, subscribe to that. But when you have the season you do, you kind of have to come in the next year and say, um, we may need to do things a little a little differently. The, the, the thing that I will probably take away from it the most, though, is he really does have the respect of the players in that clubhouse. The way they've played here down the stretch, I think, is testament to that. Look at the Nationals versus the Phillies right now. The Phillies have completely fallen apart. Yeah, yep. That was a team that had what was challenging for the best record in the league, not just the division, in the league in mid-August. They have the second-worst record in baseball since then, and they're going to end up with a losing record in the end. And I don't know how much of that Gabe Kapler has to do with, but the fact that they're on a nine-game losing streak here at the end and getting blown out every night, that's a stark contrast to what you've seen from the Nationals, who haven't had as much to play for for several weeks now and still are playing hard right through the finish line. They may not win every game, but they're not getting blown out, and they're certainly uh, right down to the final out playing with energy. Um, you know, I, I think that's a reflection of their manager. That tells me a lot about um, the influence he's had in there and the respect that he has for them. And that's among the reasons why I, I don't believe his job is in jeopardy right now. Now, let me ask you this about Ryan Zimmerman. Last year, we saw him take all that work on the backfield, or this year, I should say, in spring training, and to get himself ready to go, he played in very few games at all uh, over at the regular stadium, uh, you know, and how much of that do you think will change now going forward because of, one, he got off to a slow start, two, he had another problem staying healthy this year? Yeah, look, um, I think deep down Ryan would believe that that had nothing to do with his season and would say, well, hey, if I played all spring, I might have gotten hurt in spring, and then what would have happened then? Right. But I think he's smart enough to realize, and I think Davey is smart enough to realize, the optics of it. Um, You have to be willing to do it differently when it didn't work and when the year before when Zim was an all-star and had his best season in a decade and he did play straight through spring training I think you have to go back to that and say okay we need to, to return to that form maybe you don't have to play every day nothing like that but you can't really take the whole spring off the way that he did it's just a bad look and especially if it gets off to a bad start again next year so as long as he's healthy going into spring training um, I think there will be more of a push to have him uh, join the rest of his teammates in doing the same things that they're doing next year. Hey, Mark, I just wanted to flip back to that Phillies collapse for a second because just before we brought you in, I alluded to the fact that I, I know Andy McPhail fairly well, and I don't know Matt Klentak, but I know of him, certainly, his time in Baltimore. Um, that that club in their last 49 games is 15-34. and 34. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's automatic that Gabe Kapler is back as manager of that team? Um, 
sport. I don't know his contract structures. I don't know yep. what it would cost them. But I, it's a fair question. And, in fact, somebody raised this point to me yesterday. Um, we've known for a long time that the Phillies are going to be among the most active teams in free agency this winter. And they're going to be going after the big names, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. They have the money to spend. If you're, whether it's those two guys or other prominent free agents, and you're deciding, hey, am I going to go sign in Philadelphia? Are you looking at all of what you just described of what happened over the last mm-hmm. six weeks of the season? And over what the, at least the perception externally is of the manager and how he was perceived um, this year and saying, is that really where I want to go? Is that where I want to commit my next seven, eight, ten years of my career to? And so if you're management there, you have to maybe consider that and does that play a role in, you know, could this negatively affect what you're able to do this winter to try to get your team uh, over the hump to a point where they can be a contender for the full year and not just for four months. So um, that's a, a really fascinating dilemma they have to face. I mean, I don't like the idea of firing a manager after one year. You've got to give a guy time uh, to make it work. But if, in your estimation, that's going to have a significantly negative impact on what your front office is trying to do, then I think you have to at least consider it. Yeah. I, well, I mean, yeah. I look. we both look at Buck Showalter. If, he's, if it's announced Tuesday or Wednesday, he's not going to be back. And I'm Andy McPhail, and I know he wasn't Andy's first choice. Eric Wedge was really his right. first choice, but Peter wanted more of a name. But Andy saw what the difference Buck made at one time in a team ascending was. Um, I just think uh, it could really happen. I really see it happening. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, the other thing about the, this coming into the offseason, got the Bryce Harper situation. I am of the minor. I'm probably in the minority, Mark, and I told you this earlier. Uh, I think it's probably a 50-50 shot that uh, he could come back to the Nationals. I'm not that that far. I'm not that as high as you, Craig. Um, I'm probably at 25%, and, and I'll admit that that's up from where I maybe thought it was at the beginning of the year. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I thought there's almost no chance. And I do think what you've seen over the season has reminded us um, that – Bryce is beloved in Washington. Mm-hmm. Even yep. when he had the first half that he had, and it was a struggle, despite what anyone will try to say, that was a bad first half. Think about that. He was still uh, really loved and not, you didn't hear him getting booed. You didn't hear him getting overly criticized in the media. Um, if he does that same thing in Chicago or New York or L.A. or Philly or wherever else he might end up, uh, it's going to be a different reaction. And you wonder if in his mind he says, boy, there's a comfort level here. This is home. This is, you know, I know that I will forever be the guy here. That's um, a compelling argument to stay. Yeah. Now, that said, this isn't just a one-sided decision. Uh, there are still things about the organization that I know he wishes were better. Um, the temptation to go somewhere where they already have kind of that iconic tradition and branding and recent success in the playoffs is going to be alluring to him. And on top of it all, this is going to come down to a decision by the Nationals' front office to say, even if we love the guy, the money that we'd be investing in him, is that going to hinder us from making the other moves we need to make 
to try to improve this team. Look, this team obviously has its flaws. It's going to end up winning, you know, 82, 83 games. Um, that's not good enough. They can't go into next season with the same package. So if re-signing Bryce prevents them from bolstering their pitching staff, getting a catcher, getting a second baseman, doing whatever else they need to do, and it also leaves them now with an overcrowded outfield, there's just a, a straight baseball question there that says, is, is our best chance of winning a championship with Bryce Harper or potentially without him? And it's not a knock on Bryce. It just might be the reality of the situation. And that's yeah. uh, the dilemma that, at least from the team standpoint, that they're going to be facing here over the next couple months. Got to ask you one last question uh, on a positive note. Uh, tell me a little bit about you've watched every national that's come up from the minor leagues, uh, you know, to the majors. Uh, where would you put Juan Soto in that? Wow, it's right up there. Um, you could argue that he had a better rookie season than Bryce did yep. in that second something. I mean, a four, uh, oh, you know, plus 400 on base percentage for a 19-year-old. Yeah, Jeez, yeah and he, it, it never um, happens. It didn't, he didn't get a hit last night, but uh, it would take a pretty big weekend, but there's still an outside shot that he could finish the year at 300 average, 400 on base, 500 slugging, which would just be remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and, and still maybe not even win rookie of the year because of Acuna in Atlanta. Uh, I'd probably say other than Strasburg's rookie season, I don't know if there's anyone else that I could put uh, up there in that category. And it's, to me, the thing I keep telling people is it's not just that he's 19, but that he didn't have essentially any experience above single A. You know, he started the year in Hagerstown, low A. He went up to Potomac for about 10 days. Then he went to Harrisburg for about a week, 10 days, and then he's in the big leagues. There should be a learning curve there. There should right. be struggles, and we just have not seen that at all. Um, that's a remarkable thing, and, and it's just to tie it back to Bryce. It's among the reasons, at least the factors the Nationals have to consider now with Bryce that, well, we just kind of out of nowhere found this kid who already is that polished age 19 is only going to get better. Um, that may take care of the, that part of the equation of whether they can fill Bryce Harper's shoes or not if he leaves. Now, the other person to talk about on this team that nobody talks about is Anthony Rendon. Mm -hmm. And he's the most underappreciated player, I think, in Major League Baseball. And here he is, even after the stint on the DL this year, uh, you know, if you, if you project those numbers out. But he's still, he's closing in on 100 RBI. Uh, he's not going to get there, but, I mean, he's had a, you know, great season there as far as the, the RBIs, as far as the average, as far as the power, the home runs. Uh, why doesn't – I think we know why because he it's kind of his temperament, but you, you would think that around baseball this guy would get more ink or more talking about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's his personality, but it's also the fact that he's always been on the team with star power, yeah. you know, with Bryce and even Murphy, um, you know, offensively, and then Strasburg and Scherzer and all that. So if, if he was doing the same thing with the same personality on a different team where he was the star, you're the best player, then maybe he gets a little more attention. Uh, but he is deserving of all of it. And, uh, again, it, he's got one year now yeah. to go before he's a free agent. And that's a, a totally different situation than Bryce because here's a guy who I cannot imagine he wants to be involved in the spectacle of free agency or have to even answer one question about it next right. year. And so it's, it is why this is fascinating. And, and um, 
it's a reason why I don't know that the Nationals can afford to wait around all winter to see what Bryce does, because there are other moves that need to be made. And if they get the sense that Bryce is going to go elsewhere or that it's going to take a long time to make his decision, do they have to try to make a run at Anthony here early in the offseason to lock him up now and try to appeal to the idea of, hey, you don't want to be dealing with that next year. Um, Let's do this now. You're comfortable here. We love you. Uh, The fans love you here. You can be the cornerstone for us for a long time. Um, That's going to be a compelling argument and something they're going to have to figure out as part of this complicated puzzle they have to solve now this offseason. Hey, last question we have for you together is it's almost like a, a script written out of central casting. This year's winter baseball meetings are in Bryce Harper's hometown of Las yep. Vegas, Nevada. Will this play out at the winter meetings in his hometown, or do you think something will get decided between him and his next team or his same team well before then? I'm going to go the opposite way. I don't think it happens until after. Um, you think I'm it sure might happen in January? Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just looking at the track record of, of Boris Klein's, the big-name guys, and at least the way the market went last year, and maybe that was the anomaly where everybody was waiting. Um, but I, I just I would not be surprised if this thing drags on. I, mean, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe Bryce just wants to get this over with. Um, but it, it is fascinating, the fact that it's going to be in Vegas. Uh, his, his, unless he's already signed before that yeah. he's going to be the story yep. of those winter meetings and every little rumor that comes out is going to be blown into a huge deal um, I'm kind of dreading it <laughs> in a way as exciting as winter meetings in Vegas could be this could be a nightmare for us to cover him but yep. uh, I, I, if I had to guess I still feel like January just is, is the more typical pattern mm-hmm. for how these things go I hope it gets done sooner because it's going to hold up a lot of stuff, like I said, not just for the Nationals, but a lot of teams. So it, it would benefit everyone if it went quicker. Um, but Scott is not the guy who's just going to take the first deal on the table. He's going to want to play this thing out and let teams start to sweat and maybe increase whatever they're offering or get another team involved that maybe isn't involved at the beginning. Hey, hey dark, dark Horse team, and I, I, I know you, I'm asking you because you've seen ball games in that in that stadium is uh, the San Francisco Giants. Is that ballpark for Bryce's talent, skill set, is that a detriment to his game, or is McCovey Cove a, a, a potential lure? Because I think they've got more money than anybody else. Uh, no, I agree. And I think they uh, would love to have him, and I know that he loves to play there. Okay. Uh, he loves the environment there, and he loves the town. And I've all along thought that, that was definitely a dark horse team. Um, yes, the dimensions would seem to go against it somewhat other than right down the right field line, mm-hmm. but it worked for Barry Bonds. Yeah, that's know? what I'm thinking. Yep. So, um, and, and a guy who's willing to take his walks, who can drive the ball the other way, maybe it would increase his doubles total, maybe it would hurt his home run somewhat, but it could help him hit for a higher average, uh, hit more extra base hits. Um, yeah, I, I do think the Giants are definitely a factor uh, I think the question for Bryce more so with the Giants is going to be, are they in a position to win soon, mm-hmm. or are they looking at, boy, it's time for them to start over? Yeah. Uh, and is that what he wants to go through or not? But other than that, I think it's a really appealing place for him, and I can definitely understand why they're going to be interested in him. All right. Mark Zuckerman, you know why we're always interested in you. Appreciate it very much for coming on. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. All right. Appreciate it. 
Well, he does a good job. Oh, he's hey, the Nats are blessed with a lot of good people. Yeah. Chelsea, yeah. Uh, Craig Heist. Zuckerman. Uh, Zuckerman, uh, Craig Beck. Heist. <laughs> no. <And> Chelsea. Uh, <laughs> you know, no. we have Tom Lavero down there covering them. Yep. Uh, Jamal Collier. Yep. Uh, Colca Col- does a good Colco. job. Colco, Colco. Yeah. yep. What did I say? Colca? Colca. Colca. Yeah. It's Colco. Like Sergeant Hulka. Yeah. No, it's Colco. Colco. Right. Okay. All right. We are going to pay our respects to uh, some sponsors that didn't get their sponsors, uh, their ads read. And okay. we're going to make these up over the next couple of weeks. But we always thank the folks at Chick-fil-A, Nottingham Square, uh, U.S. Army, Jerry Chevrolet. We love Jerry Chevrolet. Project Game Day at Glory Days Grill. Green Turtle, uh, Loop League, the U.S. Army again, Fantasy and Reality Football Show, which airs tomorrow from 10 to 12, Jerry's Auto Show, um, also Green Turtle, Buffalo Wild Wings, Section 336, Loop League, and Jobbing Out, and of course, the sponsors that bring my show to you each week, in addition to those folks, are... Team Up for One, they're having their big event. I'll read that full ad in just a second. Costas Inn and Big Bats, uh, those are two of our favorite places to play. But let me tell you a little bit about Team Up for One. You can help children with challenges by attending the third annual Sports Leadership Awards Bull and Oyster Roast on August 30th. And the night will honor UMBC men's basketball coach Ryan Odom. It will raise money to help children with disabilities. For information and tickets to the Team Up for One Sports Leadership Awards at Valley Mansion, go to teamupforone.org. That's teamupforone, the number one, dot org. That's teamupforone, the number one. Org. Um, and we are just you're, about. You're pointing at her. Yeah, I'm like, pointing at her like she you should know, run the like commercial. <laughs> and that's our. That's been our problem today. That's been our problem. We have no no way to do that. All right. Uh, what do we got locally? First of all, I, I wanted to ask you. I had Rob Carlin on the TV show. You know, the other night our TV show was our 500th. Yeah, I, I saw edition that. of Inside Press Box. It shows you how long you can stay on the air if you're buying your way onto the air. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but we had Rob Carlin on, and, of course, he's pre- and post-game with Comcast, NBC Comcast, uh, with the Caps. How do you think the Caps will be this year? Uh, I, I won't know that until I see them play for the first time on Wednesday night, to be okay. honest with you. So I wouldn't even hesitate. I mean, obviously, you're coming. You're going to have a lot of emotion in the building that night. They'll raise They're the, Stanley, the Cup Stanley Cup banner, and the players get their rings. And I think I, I would assume so. Yep. And uh, they'll go out and they'll play the uh, Boston Bruins, and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, the mayor and Monumental Sports announced that they're going to be the the thing's going to be on the video board outside the. Uh, ATM. What's a, the building called now? Oh, uh, the city. Uh, no, 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 no. It's uh, Capital One Arena. Capital One Arena. That's what I meant. Not city. Capital One Arena. One of my credit cards is a city card. The other is Capital One. But uh, the, there's a video board on the side mm-hmm. of the building. It's going to be. How many people you think will be out there? Well, ten thousand. Depends on if they close the streets like they did for yeah. the Stanley Cup Finals in yeah. the playoffs. If they do, is if it ten thousand, fifteen thousand people? That, yeah. yeah, it's a party. Yeah, it's a party. All right, it's a block party. Yeah, how for about sev- the, for several blocks? Now, how about the Wizards? How will they be this year? Well, they just opened up training camp, so I mean, Dwight Howard. Dwight is, Howard is there. Doc Rivers' son. What's his name? 
Hmm. Rivers. You're asking me. It's not Glen Rivers. No, it's, but uh, uh, you're, you're looking at you're looking Mr. At Rivers. That's what of, they call him. A Mr. lot of the a lot of the same cast of characters, minus March and Gortat, because you have right. Dwight Howard, but John Wall, Bradley Beal, uh, you, you know Otto Porter is going to be there. So I mean, you know, they should. Gus be. Johnson's still no, playing. No, Gus and Gus Johnson or Roman Rowe, they're not there. They're anymore. not there anymore. No, no. Walt Bellamy. No, Walt Bellamy. Don Ole. No, now you sound like Molesky now, because I'll be, I'll be at one of those games and he'll right. he'll, he'll, he'll he'll and I'm tweeting and doing my work and then he'll throw up a, a message on my computer screen that says, "What did Kevin Lockery do tonight?" <laughs> uh, how about Nene? Yeah. He won't be there either. No, right? he won't be he there. He won't be there either. Okay. All right. We uh, greatly appreciate the work under trying circumstances of one Brittany Everett. We appreciate her every Saturday here from 10 to 12. Tomorrow, Ken Zalis and uh, Sarita Hubbard, the NFL chick, and Kyle Ottenheimer will have the Fantasy and Reality Football Show okay. from 10 to 12, Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark Show. And uh, next Saturday, we'll be back. Do you think you'll be here, or is Maryland game up? I have no idea. I'll look at okay. it and let you know. All right. We appreciate your help mm-hmm. each and every week putting the show together. All right. For all of us here at PressBoxOnline.com, we thank you for tuning in and watching us on Facebook Live.